If you're concerned about cussing, this probably isn't the podcast for you. Be advised. Hey y'all, I'm Jen. I'm from Oakland and I'm an androgynous, black, lesbian, feminist, and a lover of all black people. This is Darren. I'm an asexual novelist, researcher, and bona fide comic book fanatic from the widest part of Southern California. Orange County. We're queer millennials with three kids and nearly 20 years of marriage. This is a podcast about the realities of blackness, adulting, and relationships. This is That Black Couple. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hi. I am so impressed with this. Why? It is April. Mm-hmm. The first week of April. Officially. We have changed the schedule of the podcast to a bi-monthly podcast. We have a set number of episodes. Mm-hmm. We have a set number of seasons per year. Mm-hmm. And we have stuck to our schedule. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the struggle is real over here. But those, the people, so I want to, I just want to say hey to Michael Du. Yes. Yes. Long time listener. Long time listener. And I, and, and, and this is just, just so y'all know, this is off dome. This is just an appreciation moment. <laughs> he has stuck with us since the beginning. When we were when we were real <clears throat> when we were real questionable mm-hmm. in how we were structuring. The content's always been on. We you know, we've had some kinks to work out. Right. But the sound wasn't always right. You know. The production, we didn't know what we were talking about. We would just roll on for think for oh, I mean just forever. And he he not only did he stick with us. He would send us emails like, hey, here's some things that we want to hear, blah, blah, blah. Like, he was like, we just need more content. And I just want to say, hey, hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. We appreciate you. We appreciate you. And look, look, we did it. Mama, we made it. Mama, we made it. (laughs) How y'all doing? I'm so excited to be here. This is That Black Couple. I'm Jen. And I'm Darren. Are y'all are y'all are y'all ready to have a seat? It's episode seven of season four of that black couple, and we're talking about black poets during National Poetry Month. And I'm really excited about this because we're actually recording this a day after Maya Angelou's birthday. Mm-hmm. That's pretty dope. So if y'all could grab your Gatorade, we're gonna hydrate. I really yep. want us to stop being thirsty bitches. Yeah, get get those electrolytes in you. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Charge up your molecules in your yeah. cells. Yeah. 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 I haven't been hydrating enough in my entire life. And my goal now is to understand what it feels like to not be thirsty from the inside out. You know, we, we always bring it up, but yes. it's like, it's it's Angela Bassett goals. I'm trying to get to Angela Bassett. I think she just only drinks water. That's it. That's it. And like, I don't know if it's like an IV or something. She only need food. Or if she has a water assistant that's just in charge of making sure she has the correct water intake every day. Right. A water assistant. That's an idea. That's an idea. A water assistant. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Have a seat. This is That Black Couple. I'm Jen. And I'm Darren. Before we get started, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at That BLK Couple. 
on Facebook at That Black Couple and look us up on the internet at www.thatblackcouple.com. And you can stream us everywhere. That means Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. Amazon Music. Audible, Stitcher, Pandora. Wait. SoundCloud. Are people still listening to Pandora? Pandora is still a thing and we're on it. Wow. So if that's your your listening platform of choice, wow. find us there. Okay. We're everywhere. All right. And don't you ever, ever, ever forget that if you want that exclusive content, if you want the extra little bitty cherry on top that just sets everything off the right way that, that it needs to be set off, <laughs> go to Patreon and subscribe. I always love that part because I never know what you're going to say. I know. I, I keep I'm it interesting. Tickled. I'm always tickled. And here's something I want to add to. This is a new part of the conversation I want to add. We want people to support this podcast. Mm-hmm. Everything that we do here is really run from the beginning based on our personal income. Um, and also support of listeners who have, um, you know, been tuned in when we were doing Patreon drives, we had people who were excited about the podcast and actually bought our equipment, you know, like it's been supported by folks who are excited about this work by the community. Right. And what I want to also say is, Hey, like if you want to run an ad, we don't actually have any ads on this podcast. So we got two slots beginning and end Mm -hmm. so if you want to hit us up um and potentially buy an ad all that contact information i just gave you still applies so that blk couple at gmail.com that's where you can find us please consider that maybe you should have an ad on our show yeah because we got some dope listeners we really do michael do you might want to reach out to him that's one of them That's, that's how you do it all right you ready for the show Let's go. All right. So first things first, in our first segment, we're going to talk about just a few black poets we fuck with. Yep. Like just a couple. Because the episode is really about like being a black writer, being a black poet, but but kind of the struggles and challenges. But I want to start off talking about some folks that we fuck with. So let me start. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, really quick, what I do want to say is I feel like when you think about poets, I think a lot of people don't think about black people. Or if they do think about black people, if they think about people that, you know, was writing poetry in the 90s or earlier. Yeah, people that, that, are, that are not here anymore. Yes. And I just want to say, you know, poetry is still alive. Very much so. Black poets are still producing new content, new amazing content. Very much so. Um, they Doing things that haven't been done before. Right. Right. And that's why we should be supporting them. And also, I'm going to say something that might um not be popular or people might not like, but... As a person who was a spoken word artist, who uh, has books and books and books of poetry and, and did the, you know, uh, Pat Snap type poetry where everybody, <laughs> everybody in the speakeasy, you know, I think that's something I want to say here is that there's so many different ways of approaching black poetry and so many creative uh, styles that I think folks are employing now that I think is so interesting. It's not just the beret to the side, mm-hmm. you know, uh, patchouli, weed, you know, audience, which is my audience, the hippies. Um, it's not the, you know, stomping, you know, let's pass this around YouTube video links of somebody saying something really dope about uh, white supremacy, which is also and, my audience. And talking like and this. And like this, because this is how we all do poetry, right? So, I mean, while all those things are critically important and I love all of them, I also am excited to see 
this kind of more prose-like, more script-like, more free-flowing, um, you know, landscape right now. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about Claudia Rankin. Um, Claudia Rankin's book, Citizen, I discovered, I think, in graduate school. And it is incredible. And it's like a, a, a long meditation on being a black woman uh, in the U.S., being other in the U.S. Um, and I really have enjoyed how seamlessly she folds in like the racialized and gendered experience with this kind of um, sonnet-like writing style. Yeah. So, yeah, I, kind of, I fucks with Claudia Rankin. Nate Marshall is a dope person as an individual. I consider Nate Marshall a friend. Um, and his most recent book, Wild Hundreds, I, I've enjoyed um, reading because he's very black. He is so black. Um, and everything he writes is black. And I, 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 I think, you know, sometimes you read a, a writer's work and it makes you realize what's been missing from other work. That's how I feel about mm. his poetry. Yes. Right. I feel like there are a lot of poets that I enjoy, um, but I often don't, I often don't see the, my, my, the centrality of my blackness in their writing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then there's Warson Shire. I think all of us, uh, maybe not all of us, a lot of us were exposed to Warson Shire when Beyonce released Lemonade. I'm one of them. Um, but she has a book that came out in 2022 called Bless the Daughter Raised by a Voice in Her Head. And I haven't read this one. I've heard about it. Um, but I'm familiar with her more so through her um, work on Lemonade, which to me was very incredible. Yes. Um, just really great shit. Um, not just because she was writing from a place of, of a deep gratitude for like um, black feminism and, and the black body, um, but also because like there is something about being able to write words that sound like music even when there's no music playing. I don't mm. know how... I mean, I'm a poet. I hope I can do that. But I feel like Warsan Shire can. I feel like that is something that Black folk in particular are very good at. Yeah. Just just having a rhythm and a cadence. Yes. And, a, and, and word choice. Yes. And, like and just, you don't have to do it like this or say it in any kind of way. It just reads that way. Just read. You like just that. read it, and it reads that way. That is incredible. Yeah, that's my that's my view. That's, th- that's those those good. Thank you. <laughs> I got I got a couple names. I'm going I'm going to drop real quick. Thank you. Real 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 quick. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one. Um, if you paid attention to poets at all in the last five to ten years, um, definitely heard this man's name, Terrence Hayes. Yeah. Um, he's put out a couple works critically acclaimed mm-hmm. um he just has a great voice mm-hmm. I, I, I really love his voice and his i mean a lot of poets right it really to me comes down to voice mm-hmm. and he just has a really just strong powerful voice in his, in his work so definitely pick that one up that's that's a good one um oh i didn't even say what it's called um the, the book the book i'm thinking about is called um american sonnets for my past and future assassin that's yeah. definitely a good one to pick up um the second one i'm going to talk about um is Jericho Brown um, has a book called The Tradition. What's interesting about this poet is they actually came up with an entirely new 
style of poetry really in, in this book and so i'm gonna i'm gonna challenge everyone to go go read this work just because like i was saying black folk are still out here creating and innovating and doing new things yeah <laughs> in, in you know in the 2000s and, and 2010s we're still doing brand new things that yeah. have not been done before um and i want to spotlight that um the last one um donica kelly um has a book called bestiary and again really really great voice but it's it's something like you know one one thing that's really um, unique about poetry is when you, you read it and the words jump off of the page mm. and like you feel it in your bones and it makes you move. So it's similar to like you were saying about like how poets somehow have a musicality. Yeah, it's like it 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 causes a, a visceral physical reaction. Mm -hmm. And Donica Kelly can do that. In a, in a single line, right? Like a couple words and it's, it's hitting you to that. the core, right? And so these these are all poets that we should all be supporting. We should all be reading, enhancing our lives with their work. Love it. This podcast is supported by generous donations from our patrons and listeners. Become a supporter today by heading to www.patreon.com slash media. You can stream the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. When you listen, please consider hitting that heart button, sharing, giving us a five-star rating, and leaving some dope comments. This helps us with our paid rankings and gets more listeners for the show. Thank you so much. We're back. We are back. It was so long. It's been so long. Uh, it's just so long that we were gone. <laughs> They probably missed us. I'm sure they did. They probably missed us. I mean, we're very missable. We are very missable. But they knew we was going to come back. It was gone a long time. We shouldn't have left him. Without a dope beat. It's a step two. Step, step two. two. Step two. Step two. Step two. Yeah. Step two. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Let's stop bullshit. You have to stop. I have to stop. Continue. You started. We're in the conversation, Dan. What's going on? What would you like to talk to us about? Yes. So it is National Poetry Month, and mm -hmm. that's all well and good um, and wonderful. And we mm -hmm. can talk about poets and spotlight them and say how important this uh, form of creative writing is. Mm -hmm. um, but we'd like to talk about black people. Yes. Um, and I thought it would be very interesting to talk about just the difficulties of being a black writer in yeah. 2023. Yeah. Um, because I feel like we don't really think about that or talk about it enough no we don't because shit is hard yes it is and as i'm known to do yes i found a way to sneak in some research and of some course. facts and some of figures course you did. Of course even you did. in a conversation like this. as you should you are a ravenclaw <laughs> do it that's how i roll that's you know you roll. um so the, yeah the, you know talking about the difficulties of being a black writer i thought you know well let's let's get some facts and figures right like yes. we can we can have ideas and we can have opinions all fucking day, but you can't really contradict Evidence. hard facts. Yeah. Right. So um, the first thing I'm going to start with is Toni Morrison, mm -hmm. the great, the wonderful, the amazing, the mm -hmm. legendary mm -hmm. Toni Morrison. Um, you know, outside of being just a boss of a writer, um, Toni Morrison was was really famous for when she shared that when she worked as an editor at Random House, which was from 1976 to, to 1983. About three percent of the books that were published during that time were written by black authors. Three percent. Three percent. After she left, after she left, 
Random, um, Random House published only two books by black authors between 1984 and, 19, <laughs> and 1984 and 1990. And one of the people that wrote those books was Toni Morrison. Can we, can we tear you here for a moment? <laughs> when I saw this in the notes, I was like, oh no, that's my publisher. Yeah, that's your publisher. I'm publishing at Random House. And it's interesting because one of the things that drew me to Random House was the fact that Toni Morrison worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, this this resonates in a particular way because, you know, it's a very linear, um, uh, it's a very linear relationship. I, I was inspired to come to this publishing house because of the the goat, the goat of writing. To mm-hmm. me, the greatest writer of all time, Toni Morrison. And had she not b- decided to be one of the first, you know, had she not decided to uh, put herself in that situation where she had to be surrounded by whiteness at all times, um, you know, I might not be at this publishing yeah. house. You know and what I'm that, saying? And that's what's happening a lot. A lot of people are being inspired, you know, as usual, by those that came before them. That's it. And I think black people more and more are finding their voices and finding their lanes and finding publishing opportunities and things like that. Yes. But, you know, this is still a challenge. It's still a challenge. It's still a challenge. And I think I think what concerns me um, is that while we are seeing so many more black folk getting published, especially in the nonfiction um, mm-hmm. category, I think that folks don't realize proportionately when we think about black folk as a proportion of society or proportion of yeah. writers, it's still, it's, it's still out of whack, right? It's, it's still it's it's outrageous. Right. What it is. And I think that sometimes people get excited because they see, they see it getting better. And they and it gets better and it's like, Ooh, we made it, y'all. And it's like, no, it's still not equitable. It's not. And let me let me put some numbers to Let's it. Let's do that. So, um, you know, there's there's never exact numbers on stuff like this because it's it's a little bit subjective and mm-hmm. you know, how do you actually collect this information? Data, all that type of all stuff. That. Mm-hmm. But about about seventy nine, eighty percent of writers and authors are white. Yes. Sounds about white. Let me say that again. About eighty percent of writers, working writers, publishing writers are white. Sounds about white. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot. And 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 publishing and writing has been known to be a, a white industry for a long time. But hearing that number is mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when you think about black writers and authors, mm-hmm. that's about six percent mm-hmm. of all writers. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a decent number. Decent. decent okay um i mean to be honest when i read that i was like oh okay, mm-hmm. okay. but in a second we're gonna compare it yeah. to the actual but, uh census bureau yeah yeah but yeah that, and that's what that's mm-hmm. what i'm getting at because when you think about population black people are about 13 percent of the population that's it so you know when right you make those comparisons it really kind of shows you how overrepresented white people mm-hmm. are in the industry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no i mean if, if if white folk are about you know 75 80% that that is representative of uh their their proportion of society what concerns me that to me then means that there's overrepresentation of other groups that are often seen as um you know sexier and uh, more mm-hmm. valid because how are there only 6% of black writers right that that's that's half of yeah. their proportion in society and and 
facts have said that the readership among black people is actually going up. Readership yes. of black writers is going up. Yes. And so it's really weird to see numbers like that. Right. Because they don't make sense. They a don't lot make a lot of sense. Um, and it's frustrating. Yeah. But, you know, those numbers I was just talking about were just generalized overall numbers, right? What, what people really point towards is like what really means something is what's happening at the major publishers, right? The, yeah. the, the big houses. Um, and back in 2020, the New York Times actually did a, did a study because, mm. you know, everyone, as I said, has keep talking about how the publishing industry is so white, it's so white, it's so white. Because it is. And they were like, well, you know what? Let's, let's figure it out. Let's, let's try to see how let's white it is. Let's get some data. Let's, let's see if what people think is actually really mm-hmm. true. Um, here's a couple of the things that they come up with. Um, so they collected information about about the writers at the at the major publishing houses at the time in 2020, and some of these have consolidated since then. But it was Simon and Schuster, Penguin Random House, Doubleday, HarperCollins, and Macmillan. Right, those were the big houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they looked at um, all of the books um, yeah. that were published, um, of the 7,124 books for which 7, for which they were able to identify the author's race, yes. 95% were written by white people. How does that make sense? 95 You said these are people who identify as a person of color? Yes. Well, no. So they looked at all of those public publishing houses, the big houses, and of the people where they were able to identify the race. So obviously there's some people where they weren't, they couldn't identify, they didn't yes. know, they, they couldn't get the information. But of the people where they definitely knew with the person's race was 95%. 95% of them were white. Jesus. Now, in a way, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. In a way, that makes a lot of sense, especially compared to the number that I said before of, of yes. the, the 6% black writers in total, because a lot of black writers are not going to be published at the major houses. Right. They're going to be at independent right. houses. They're going to be at small right. presses. They're going to right. be self-publishing. Which means right. that that overrepresentation that we're seeing, it was only maybe like 4% of overrepresentation generally mm-hmm. of white writers, but it means that that overrepresentation is probably concentrated at some of the biggest publishing houses exactly. in the world. Exactly. Exactly. Which you know gives you gives you a lens into, oof, into how white oof, the industry they'd is. Be, ooh, they'd be dating. And it goes and it goes further. And mm. in twenty nineteen, um eighty five percent of the people who acquired books for publishers. So now we're talking about the industry. So these are the people who say this I'm gonna purchase book. these books, I'm mm-hmm. gonna sell them. Eighty five percent of those people were white. That's not surprising. That's not surprising, right? Um in in twenty twenty in 2020, mm-hmm. of the 212 books that were on the New York Times bestseller list, Oof. 22 were written by people of color. Mm. That's that's over 10 percent, mm. right? And if people if, of color, all the people, all the people, so all not, 20, not black, all 25 percent of them, but but just people of color, all 25 percent of the population of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. And so these numbers. They're a little distressing. This is, this is, this is. And then, and then just to kind of cap it off. And this is, this is where I think it gets interesting. And, and as we're looking to the future, we can see that people are trying to make things change. In 2019, about half of the publishing industry's interns identified as people of color. That is true. Now there's two sides of that, right? Yes. So there's people trying to get into the industry, trying yes. to make a change, trying to say, Hey, there's, there's books that I want to be out there that represent yes. me, that speak to the people that yes. I know. Right. Trying to get their way in. Yes. However, yes. 
being an intern in the publishing industry is There's one of no the guarantee, worst right. places you and could ever no work. And it's no guarantee that you will ever become an agent. <laughs> it's no guarantee that you ever no. have your own publishing house. There's no guarantee of anything. You Nothing. get paid very, very little. Nothing. You work very, very hard. Right. I've I've known many a people right. who have been um, interns at publishing houses yes. and literally had to just up quit. and quit for literally. their own sanity. Right. Right. It is it is a tough It's a very extractive position, which is why so many people are in that position because the folks at the top, typically white women, are extracting mm-hmm. labor from usually women of color. Yeah. And that's and that's the industry. That's that's, that's the industry. That's what's happening, right? Yeah. And so it, so and I say all that to to give a backdrop to this conversation to say being a black writer is hard. Being a black writer is hard. Being it's, a black editor is hard. Being a black intern is hard. Being black yeah. in the publishing industry is incredibly hard. Yeah, you are clearly even and and not not to shit on the industry either because there are a lot of people, a lot of very well-meaning white people mm-hmm. to be very clear mm-hmm. who see that stuff and know that it's bad and want it to be better and are doing a lot of work and trying very hard to make it better. Yeah. But the the numbers are the numbers, right? Yeah. So you are very much pushing up against whiteness at every, at every step yes, yeah. in the process from when you're actually just writing, trying to figure out what, your voice and trying to figure out how to become a writer to when you're actually trying to get an agent to when right. you're trying to get... But like every single step you are pushing right up against whiteness. Right. And I think... So a couple of things here. A couple of things. I think this obviously hits home for me because, as you know, I changed agents last year, and I I previously had a white woman as an agent, and um, you know I'm not about to trash her on a, a podcast or nothing, but I mean she's she's a successful agent. It just she's wasn't done a lot of good. We stuff. weren't aligned. We yeah. just weren't aligned, and but it took me working with her for a number of years to realize what we're talking about, like the what it feels like to have to push up against whiteness at all times in your writing as a black writer, and now. You know, my my uh, editor at Random House and my agent are both women of color. And it, it's a very different experience. It's a very, very different experience. And I will say, like, I think that, um, you know, we, we, I think, take for granted the fact that so many Black writers are telling their stories and getting these, you know, like, I'll say, like, George Johnson is writing nonstop. And getting deal after deal after deal after deal, which is so important for all of us. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, folks like Kayanga Yamada Taylor and Robin D.G. Kelly, you know, co-writing with Colin Kaepernick. You know what I'm saying? And creating these anthologies where all these folks are, are getting writing opportunities. And we've got folks who are opening up their own imprints. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's really an important moment for so many of us as black writers. And we need those doors opened. Like we need those spaces held for us like Tony did, you know, because yes. otherwise we will bump up against whiteness. And it is so, it's, it's so sharp and violent and subtle and, mm-hmm. and, and harmful. And it, it, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't honor our work. Yeah. I mean, just, the way I think about it and watching your journey has been so interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Writing in and of itself is a very vulnerable Extremely. Act, right? You are literally putting yourself on the page. You're exposing yourself in so many ways. Yes. From every angle. Yes. <laughs> with every word that you put down, right? Yes. Doing that as a black person, you're especially vulnerable, right? Yes. Because we're, all, we're already vulnerable people. Yes. And then... Again, in an industry where you're pushing up against whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. So 
even like you said in subtle ways in implicit ways in unconscious ways yes unintentional ways yes right? well-meaning ways very well-meaning ways right yeah where like to your point it's important that you have people who get it yeah there's it's important that you have people around you that understand that's it, it. Right. And when I think about a lot of the work that's come out over the last five to 10 years, right, a lot of really amazing, groundbreaking stuff that black people have put out. Yes. But, you know, anecdotally thinking about that stuff that they've you know, kind of shared, like it was hard. They had to work really hard. Whenever I read Kiese's yeah. narratives about working through his own publishing processes and having to buy back his own stuff. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, Disha Filial had struggles as well with, mm-hmm. with agents and and folks who weren't supporting her work. And I'm just like, this is this is wild to me. These are these are phenomenal writers, mm-hmm. brilliant human beings. And they were they were they were treated you know, like the riffraff, like, like, like they had no business being in the room because the industry didn't get it. And because didn't the industry know. didn't get it, and that is so disappointing. And I think for me, that's why I'm like, you know, what I'm not even, gonna, I'm not even gonna allow myself to be in front of white folk like that and have them think that they're qualified to to uh, have any type of conversation about the worth or or estimation about the value of my work anymore. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to do it in academia, and I'm certainly not going to do it in publishing. And and the people support it, right? The, the yes. people are who the writing is for. Right. Right. And if they get it. Right. And the writers get it. Right. right we're just trying to bridge the gap. Right. And you got to build a team. This thing, you got to build a team around you who who gets it. And I just, I think that when, when I hear these stats, it's like, this is why we have to support black agents. This is why we have to support black publishers. We have to actually in the writing in the writing world, those of us who are who are in it, we have to seek out the folks who are actually trying to open doors and hold those spaces. We have to yes. we have to actually support them. You can find my mom and dad, aka that black couple, on the web at thatblackcouple.com. That black couple is owned and operated by Color Combos Media. If you would like to help fund our content, sign up at www.patreon.com slash colorcombosvideo. Please consider giving us 5 or $10 per month to help us build our platform and grow our organization. You can also give one-time donations at www.paypal.me slash colorcombosmedia. All donations are welcome. Okay, let's wrap it up with our reflections last segment. Let's do it. So I want to talk really briefly about, you know, just challenges we faced as writers and how we've overcome them. Okay. Okay. I mean, um... I identify as a poet, essayist, author. Um, I write, you know, op-eds and short, not short stories so much. Me and short stories aren't friends, I should. Um, but op-eds, um, essays, and books, and poetry. And I think where I've faced the most challenges is in op-ed writing. Um, writing for, you know, fast-paced um, 24 hour news cycle, uh, online publications is incredibly grueling. It's probably one of the things in my life that I was like, yeah, I don't know if I ever needed to get involved in this whole journalism thing. Um, it's exhausting having to constantly be, be plugged in and trying to forecast and predict stories before they happen. Um, and one of the challenges I faced was that I didn't have the time and capacity to be on and tapped in at all times it got to a point where like you know i had children i had a full-time job outside of journalism 
Um, I was like, yeah. People are like, did you see this? Did you hit? No, I've been at work all day. Like, and I started getting behind on what was happening in the world. Um, and it, I, it began to, I felt fatigued, you know, yeah. it, it, I felt exhausted. So at some point <laughs> I just decided to stop doing that. I decided to stop chasing the news. Um, because I didn't, I, I didn't want to be that kind of journalist anymore. I didn't, I didn't want to be a reporter. Um, and then I wanted to honor the type of writing that I wanted to do. And I was like, I need time to digest what's happening. I need time to sit with it. I need time to read mm-hmm. what other people are thinking about the thing and yeah. have said about the thing. I need time to marinate on my experiences. I need time to journal, you know, before I come out and say something. And I just decided to stop doing that. And it's funny, my friend the other day, my friend Key, was like, yeah, I think you're so funny because, you know, we'll all like go off about something. It'll be like a day or two later. And you'll be like, so... And you'll just mic drop all of us. And he's like, I love it about you because you really be having something important to add. And you're not going to repeat what anybody else said. You have a unique perspective on this. And it took me a long time to realize that that unique perspective was important. And it was better to wait on myself and to sit with myself and to honor myself to develop that and to, to nurture that than to rush to give some canned response or you know and when i stopped doing that my writing improved and my writing professional life improved the places i got invited to write it improved because i found my voice that's really good advice thank you that's what i think every writer needs to hear and and keep in mind and remember that you are the thing Mm -hmm. you are unique in being a writer, it's what you specifically have to provide that really counts and what really matters. We got to keep that central. Um, and that kind of honestly really feeds into, I think, my biggest challenge. Um, I identify as a writer, I guess, writer at large. Yeah. Because um, you're that nigga. Novel writer, short story writer, poetry writer, mm-hmm. uh, opinion writer. Yeah. You know, I write. Everything. All right, all the things. Yes, you um, do. And I think my my biggest obstacle has definitely been imposter syndrome. Mm. Huh. It has definitely been on so many levels of, is my writing good enough? Do I have something important to say? Do people care about what I have to say? Is someone else more important? It, did, did I get all the typos out? Mm. Did I go over this and edit it enough times? Did it? Like, I'm, I consider myself definitely a high achiever and yes. I always want to be like the best at whatever I'm doing <laughs> yes. and trying to be the best at writing is a losing game. You got that Capricorn moon is, it's, is kicking your ass. It is beating my Taurus ass. Taurus sun, Capricorn moon. Beating <laughs> my ass. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like you can't, you can't be the best at writing. No one, no one is the best at writing. No, well, Toni Morrison. I was, I was gonna say Toni Morrison is not the best at writing. She's the best at writing. She's, she's really good. And I don't care what you say. I'm gonna tell you right now. I'm gonna tell you right now. If you go back and read some of Toni's stuff, no, there's some questionable things no, in there. I don't care what you say. There's some stuff 
that goes on too long. We don't hear him. There's some stuff no, that that, it's not that if she went back, no. I think she's even come out and said no. this. There's some things that she didn't like so no. much. You some don't want to be married that, anymore. That she would edit and no. she would change and she would do differently. You, who is this man? I'm just saying. No. There, there is no the best. She is. <clears throat> a lot of white people like to say a lot of these white white men writers are the best. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. But she's Serena of writing. So I oh don't... yeah, yeah, yeah. And Serena's the I just best mean that to say. Piss. I just mean that to say, like there's no perfect. Okay. Like there, there's you know there's okay. There's minor league and there's major league. Okay. You know. I there's, mean, there's there's stratosphere. I mean, agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> she, but she, she the Serena. She, the, she the Grand Slam. You know. That's who Tony is. Listen, I'm listen. Black women are perfect to me. I don't know what you're talking about. We're talking about two perfect human beings. Serena Williams and Tony Morrison. That is perfection. I don't know. I'm there's, sorry. There's two different I'm sorry. You're having perfection. a professional conversation and I, I'm... Okay. But, I mean, to that point, right? Serena is the GOAT. Serena she is, is goat, a perfect goddess she, made of sunshine and raspberries. But she didn't, she didn't win every match. With the perfect alignment of muscle tone and fat <laughs> distribution. Chiseled from Mother Nature herself. First of her name. Goddess, Olympia, child, mother. <laughs> Sorry, she's perfect. She's perfect. She's perfect. She is. I see what you're saying, but hypothetically. Like I said, she didn't win every match. I don't. She, she it, she, it wasn't meant to be. She didn't. You know, she didn't have perfect games every time she, she didn't played, have to. You know, because imagine being so perfect, you still don't even have to do all the right things, and you but, still can be perfect. But the uh, the point I'm trying to get to. Uh-huh. Is with writing, mm-hmm. you can get yourself into a black hole yes. that you never come out of because it, because it is such a a singular, isolating act. Absolutely, you can edit yourself into oblivion. Into oblivion, yes. Right. Imagine, imagine if you were Serena and you were playing tennis. Yes. And you could say, you know what? Let me rewind time. Yes. And do that. Some do Doctor that, Strange. Do shit. that volley again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have hit it harder. Yeah. I could have sliced it to the side. I we, we earth signs. We do that in real right. life. That's who we are. And I'm saying as a writer, yes. that that is what you actually really have that power. Yes. Oh, yes. I know. And you can sit somewhere in a corner for years. Yes, I know. And do that unending. Yes, we know. And have no one has any idea. Yes. <laughs> we, have a, we have a secret first child. Oh, Can yeah. we tell the podcast? Oh yeah, yeah, he out there. We yeah. have a secret first child, you and I. We we keep, we keep him <laughs> close to us. Do we um, want to talk about this? He's loved, <laughs> and he will he will see he will the light, see light of day. day. We will let him out. He will see the light of day. He not he not ready for the sun yet. He not ready for the sun. Do we want to tell them who our secret first child um, is? Yeah, we can tell him who our secret first child is. He was born. He was born in two thousand and six. He was born in two thousand six. In June June two thousand and six. Yeah. Um, he, he was born. He, he was welcomed into the earth, into the world, with, um, with loving arms on a sunny afternoon mm-hmm. in, in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Darren decided he wanted to start writing a book, I was like, "I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be real serious about I'm gonna this. Write I'm this. A, book. I'm gonna write this book. That was I've had this book on my heart. That was 2006. Um, so you know, our baby, our baby. He's he's had some growing pains. Our baby was 17. He's had some growing pain, you know. He 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 went through puberty. He had an awkward phase. He had an awkward phase. His you his know. his voice changed. His voice, his voice dropped, changed. You know, his voice did. changed. It, yeah. got, it got more personal. It got more personal. Yeah. Um. You know, he develops he's, more more scenes and yeah, he's he's and maturing. He's maturing. 
He's coming into he's his own. He's getting more depth. He's, he's, he's getting an identity. He's getting more character. You know? Yeah. And 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 very soon, I think he's going to be ready to hopefully, step out into the, the world. world. Meet him before he turns twenty one. You know, he gonna he gonna be an adult. Will we meet him before he turns twenty one? You think he gonna he gonna be able to drink? I love how you didn't answer the question. Um, <laughs> I love how you won't answer the question. You know, you know, the kids nowadays they tend to stay home a little bit longer. You want to keep him in until so he's about twenty five, you know, till his gotta, brain fully develops. We gotta see. Okay, so we gonna so anyway, y'all. That's he he gonna he gonna. He gonna make it. I, saying, I trust and believe in we're him. We're saying all this to say. We're saying all this to say <laughs> that we're speaking about this imposter syndrome and this editing into oblivion from personal experience because we together. That's the other thing about being in a couple. I don't mm-hmm. think people know that when you're really, really together, like in real life together. Ooh, I don't want to drag nobody's relationship. But hey, hey, if a hit dog holler, it's not on me. I'm not hitting. I'm not hitting, the, I'm you, not hitting the dog. Like I'm you. not hitting the dog. I'm just punching in the air. Like boys in the hood, and if you walk into the punch, it's not your fault. It's not my fault. But what I'm saying is, like when you really together in a real relationship, where you look out for one another and support one another's work, and you potentiate one another, and you want to see the other one grow, then when the one person does something, it's like you're both doing it. Exactly. So, so exactly. So you've read everything I've done, and you've helped me conceptualize and theorize. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a us project. And I've sat and we've figured out scenes and mm. what makes sense and sounds corny and, and what character should be gay and shoes they're and, wearing and how how the things should crawl up the leg and not lay down and do this thing and be black and look like smoke mm. and is it spiritual and like we've done mm-hmm. those things together we've done those things together so this is our child yeah and I'm going to be so proud of him I'm going to be so proud of him when he meets the world. Hopefully, by the time he's 25. Boy meets world. Boy meets world. <laughs> and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in our Patreon segment. Yes. Because the, the other piece of this conversation that we don't have time to talk about here. Yes. Is. The logistics. You, the logistics. When you when you are, like, taking it seriously, what steps can you take? What education Getting can you have? Getting an MFA. You know, what people do you need to have as a Getting part of Getting an agent. Team? Yes. All of those types of things. Yes. Working with a publisher. We'll do that. A quick segment for our Patreon subscribers. So if you want to hear stuff like that, go to Patreon. Find us. Thank y'all for listening. Before you go, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ThatBLKCouple, on Facebook at ThatBlackCouple, and look us up on the internet at www.ThatBlackCouple.com. Bye.